I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. I have another guest that I'm really excited about. This one I've been fanning over for some time and was really smitten to score for this podcast. Lama Rod Owens is an author, activist, and authorized Lama, a Buddhist teacher of Tibetan Buddhism. Lama Rod is the co-founder of Bhumis Parsha, a Buddhist tantric practice and study community. He holds a Master of Divinity degree in Buddhist studies from Harvard Divinity School, where he focused on the intersection of social change, identity, and spiritual practice. He is the author of Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger, and co-author of Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation, which explores race in the context of American Buddhist communities. Lama Rod has been published and featured in several publications, including Tricycle, the Harvard Divinity Bulletin, Spirit Magazine, and offered talks, retreats, and workshops for many organizations and universities. I wanted to have Lama Rod on the show quite selfishly because of the calm I feel whenever I listen to him speak. I'm sure you're going to understand that in a minute when you too get to be in his energetic field. I also wanted to get a Buddhist perspective on trauma and trauma healing. In this conversation, we talk about surrendering to the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, and the difference between centering your practice, and when I say practice, that includes mindfulness and insight meditation, truthfulness with self and in relationship with others, and everything about practice of living and right living, uh, whether we center that in liberation or versus centering our practice, our meditations, our relationships in comfort. And, and I love this, we talk about not picking up other people's labor, really good insights there. Plus we chat about working with anger, triggers, the role of the teacher in our practice and journey and Lama Rod's forthcoming book and what it means to be a saint in today's world. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Great. Well, welcome Lama Rod. I'm really very, very grateful to have you here. I've been following your work, listening to you on other podcasts and reading your writing for some time. And I've always just been so touched and amazed by the spaciousness and healing one can feel just by hearing your voice. So I thought what a gift to give our listeners and maybe a little bit selfishly myself to uh, have some time to spend with you. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I, I thought this podcast is centered around trauma healing and kind of embodied practices that we can use to shift the impacts of trauma 
And we haven't really had anyone on to give a Buddhist perspective. Uh, A lot of my listeners come from yoga backgrounds, so they are kind of Buddhism adjacent (laughs) and they might practice some little bit of like Buddhist practices, you know, mixed with some yoga philosophy, maybe even some Hinduism and kind of uh, mishmash. And I thought just hearing a little bit more about Buddhism and that practice and how it specifically can help with trauma would be really beneficial to the listeners. And well, maybe you can share a little bit about your story and then how you came to be a Buddhist Dharma teacher. Yeah, you know, I started out early in my life, you know, early teens, really concerned with suffering, really the suffering of the world, the suffering of communities, my own suffering. And I just had this really natural compulsion, I guess, to want to help, you know, and that was the most exciting thing for me growing up was like helping, being a part of projects or initiatives in my community or at church and at school where I was giving back and helping, right? And that led me into deeper service in college. You know, I was able to do a lot of service work, advocacy work, and eventually activism in several different fields, you know, in areas from hunger and homelessness to HIV AIDS awareness uh, and education, even sexual assault advocacy and support. And when I moved into my 20s, I at the same time felt such a disconnect from my upbringing as a Christian. You know, I grew up in church and I just felt a deep disconnection from God. You know, I just felt like everything that I was doing no longer lined up with what other Christians around me was doing. And I had to go through a period where I broke up with the church and with God and really devoted myself deeper into a deeper engagement with activism specifically. And of course, that led me into, after graduation, joining and moving into an activist community in Boston. And that's really where I deepened my understanding of social justice. Yet at the same time, I was also struggling with severe depression. And the depression got stronger and stronger. And I really had to vow, like I had to like one day just say, this isn't going to beat me. This isn't going to get me right. So I just began this exploration of modalities and paths of healing that was accessible to me from pharmaceuticals and medications to nutrition and energy work and counseling and therapy and so forth. But nothing was really speaking to me until I met a healer, an energy worker who encouraged me to take meditation seriously, you know, and at that time I didn't take meditation seriously. I had tried meditation. I was adjacent to a lot of practicing Buddhists, but I wasn't really interested and I just really couldn't maintain a regular meditation practice. But this healer really encouraged me to do that. And of course, we did many other things on top of the meditation work. And 
I, you know, committed and slowly began to see this really beautiful transformation, this awakening in my experience. I was moving out of this really intense suffering into a kind of spaciousness and awareness. And it was just enough space for me to understand that Buddhism was a path that was going to get me to where I wanted to be. Right. I didn't know where I wanted to be, but I knew I wanted not to suffer. Mm. I knew that much. Yeah. And so that began my engagement with Buddhism and Dharma. And it also began, you know, my engagement with yoga as well. And, and of course, that led me out of my activist community into a monastic community where I trained for five years three and a half of those years being in cloistered retreat mm. where I trained to become a teacher. Yeah. And that's what Lama means teacher in the Tibetan tradition. Yeah. And I definitely want to ask you about that. I want to ask you a, a few questions. I read that you, was this healer, the, a Christian healer or was that a different? Yes. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. really like interesting, right? Cause yeah. I went to Rwanda some years ago to uh, work with folks who had been through the genocide and, a place where a lot of Christian missionaries had been. And the word around town was yoga is the devil, right? So, yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that there's meditation in so many mm-hmm. spiritual and religious traditions. Yeah. I wonder, was that unusual in your community that there was this kind of Christian healer that used meditation? And maybe was the meditation similar to what you were then later taught in the Tibetan tradition? Yeah. Well, yeah, the meditation was mindfulness. Yeah. Like it was just like straightforward mindfulness, learning how to use anchors, right, to steady my mind. And, you know, in terms of like this Christian healer, you know, in the community that I was living in, there were so many really interesting spiritual practitioners, right, in the community. And part of my journey and figuring out like what the modalities were for me to work with depression. Part of that path was really just sitting down and talking with all of these different practitioners that I knew. I talked with my Muslim friend, right? And I had a Christian science healer friend as well. And I had, you know, uh, of course, Buddhist elders that I sat with and folks in different denominations of Christianity, you know, but everyone was super open-minded. So when I met this healer, even though I had left Christianity, it didn't really bother me that she was Christian, right? Because one of the things I began to understand when I was talking to my friends in these different paths was that the Christianity that I grew up with was colored by the violence that people embodied in the religion, you know, in the church, right? It wasn't quite God that was interacting mostly with people's insecurities, Mm. the ways in which they struggle to embody love and compassion for themselves and therefore struggle to express that same love and compassion for others. And that's the kind of trauma that I survived. Mm. You know, I think that's the same trauma many of us survived growing up in religious communities, right? We just didn't get what we needed because people didn't quite fully embody like the teachings of the past. So when I met this Christian healer, I just felt love. <laughs> like I felt love, acceptance, compassion, you know, this very non-judgmental attitude. And that was really quite inviting to me. 
as well. But when you get into communities like that, where people are really understanding the fluidity of practice that like yoga isn't just situated within one culture and one timeline, that is something that's reflected in many cultures. You know, when you have that kind of mindset, then communities really become quite inclusive and inviting and can hold the diversity of practices people are interested in. That's right. And that's when you kind of get that feeling that you're, this is real. And yeah, and we're attracted to that resonance. Kind of yeah. I was saying that I feel when I'm around you and so many do. And, and I read that you said that the Dharma didn't just tell you about love and compassion, but it took it to the next level, which is I think what we're talking about now, which is actually living it and becoming it. Yeah, like it took me into the struggle of loving. So like love and compassion wasn't just a story or a parable. It wasn't just this cliche that you threw around, right? The Dharma forced me to wrestle with becoming love. And that course, that first stage of wrestling is actually opening to love for yourself, right? And so that was hard work. And it continues to be hard work. It's a little easier now. But to begin to really do the labor of loving yourself, right, beginning to hold everything that we habitually run away from about ourselves, right, to hold it, to not react to it, but to create space where we can respond to the things that need to be cared for and tended to, right? That's the deep self-love, right, that Dharma introduced me to, and that begins to transform you. You know, for me, I didn't have to think about how to love people or to how to have compassion for folks because the compassion and love that I was developing for myself began to naturally express itself towards others mm. without me even thinking. It's like the love that we hold for ourselves or have for ourselves becomes this kind of space that opens up around us. So you like become like the sun, like you just begin to radiate. Mm care and compassion around you. It's not like you're focusing. The sun doesn't know, right? That is like warming us up, right? The sun is just the sun radiating. Yeah. You know, it's just this ball of fire when chemical reactions producing light and heat. It's the same thing for us when we just do the work of loving ourselves. We just start radiating love unconditionally and non-judgmentally to everyone, regardless of who they are. Hmm. So the love that you feel for me is actually really radiating from the love that I have for myself. That is so beautiful. And um, I can feel into that and I can understand how if I love and accept myself, then I don't feel like I have to contract around other people or get defensive because mm-hmm. I know who I am, even yeah. those parts that I've maybe not liked so much, but I'm open to them. So in that kind of space, no one can harm me and I can feel more free to love other beings. Exactly. Yeah. You feel you have the space, Yeah. right? When we're contracted and shut down, it's hard for us to trust anything. Mm. That contraction is really just an expression of trauma. Yeah. And so maybe you can share for us a little bit about the journey to get there Mm -hmm. because obviously we don't get right to that spot. And there's this facing of some stuff that, you know, we might not like about ourselves. Yeah. 
And what I like about your teaching and what I try to get across to folks who come to me is that because meditation, right, it's now being sold so much like to heal, heal all our problems and make yeah. us happy. And yeah. then we kind of have to fight against that when people come to us and shift their thoughts on meditation and let them know, actually, this might not feel great all the time or right away. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and my teacher once said that to build a fire, you have to like deal with smoke first. Right. And I think when we do begin the work of loving ourselves and doing and moving into telling the truth, right? Because this work is really truth telling. Like, this is how I've shown up in the world. Like, this is who I am. Right. These are the things that I've done. These are the things that I've thought. Like, that kind of truth telling can be quite brutal. Right. But what is helpful here is that we begin to hold space. Like, so we, we let go of reacting to everything that's arising. And you remember that you're not the only one, right? Yeah. Who's going through this. The isolation is what intensifies the suffering of this labor. When I say, well, I'm the only one who's ever done this and said this, you know, like I'm the only one that shit like this happens to, mm-hmm. you're not, yeah. right? And so you open up and say, you know, I and others, and I would even say countless others have experienced this, right? And maybe I did certain things, you know, that created a lot of harm, but it's okay because now this is the medicine that I'm taking, right, to begin to heal the causes and conditions that led to this kind of harm, you know, in my life. And so on top of that, holding space is also the grieving. I have to grieve everything that, like, I am always running away from, you know. I have to allow myself to experience the sadness, right, and the hopelessness and the despair, but not get lost in it. But again, remembering that I'm not the only one, right? Mm -hmm. And in my practice, I call in support, you know, so I call in the support of benefactors that can be living beings or unseen beings, formless beings, right? Like deities and spirits and ancestors and so forth. And as I'm moving through this labor of holding space for this, these things about myself, I am connecting to the love that these beings have for me. It's so the love becomes a lifeline from benefactors that we hold on to. So we don't have to do this work alone, right? You know, but it's like touching the earth in a way. It's like so many of us are so far away from reality itself. Like we live in narratives and assumptions about the world and about ourselves. Yeah, That's a practice that keeps us safe, you know, (laughs) because there's a lot of pain and hurt that freaks us out, right? But this work of loving is about learning how to connect to the earth, which for me is how I describe telling the truth about how things are, like coming into reality, coming into the truth of things, right? And once I touch the earth in this way, then I'm able to change and respond to things that need to be responded to, right? You know, and that's where the real radical transformation starts to happen. Mm-hmm. Like when I am in relationship with things as they are, and therefore I have this agency to change the things that need to change. Yeah. So instead of maybe 
how some folks might come in and just want to change things right away. The first part is being with, this is what is right now. Yeah. And this is the same, it's the same practice for social justice and for understanding that in order to change things, we have to feel and experience the reality of the thing itself. Yeah. You know, and that's what I had always been struggling to do up until I began my practice. Like I really, really, really wanted to touch the thing, to touch the issues that I was struggling with, you know, for myself and for my communities. Right. But I was always so afraid of the grief that I had to move through, which I call brokenheartedness. We have to let our hearts break for the things that like we're always running away from. Or if we don't do that, the heartbreak or allow the heartbreak to happen, then we'll never get to the change itself. Yeah. And so maybe you can speak about that. And you, you talk so much about that, I, I feel like, in your book. Mm-hmm love and rage and that that the anger is Mm -hmm. usually what we face first and that the anger is covering what is really sadness and heartbreak. Yeah. The sadness, the hurts. Disappointment. Disappointment. Absolutely. Despair, hopelessness. And this is a very common question. You know, people come to me and they say, I'm so angry. I can't do anything with the anger. And I tell them, well, it's not about the anger, actually. (laughs) The anger is pointing you to a real deep disappointment or sadness. And the anger is asking you to go take care of that, right? So again, the anger feels really powerful. But when we begin to shift our attention to the hurt beneath the anger, it can seem very depleting. It can seem very vulnerable, right? And this is why we're always trying to to bypass like the hurt beneath the anger because it's a different kind of energy, right? You know, it doesn't feel powerful and invincible like anger. But the only way to offer care to our anger is to offer care and space to the hurt beneath the anger, right? Mm -hmm. And the anger doesn't necessarily go away, but the anger is important because it's still letting us know that we're hurt. And the hurt is letting us know that there is imbalance happening that I have to respond to. I am hurt for a reason, and I have to figure out what that reason is. Yeah, and I like how you spoke too about the anger making us feel powerful and giving us this illusion of agency. And I can certainly relate to mm-hmm. folks who have been through trauma that there's a, a often a feeling of a loss of power, a loss of yes. autonomy. Yes. And, and so for those who are stepping into, okay, I'm going to open up to some vulnerability, mm-hmm. is there a deeper agency that comes at the end of this that, <laughs> that we can look to? What, what would you say is a more holistic agency of herself well you know like beginning to make the choice to say i'm going to take care of this pain like it's already for me quite powerful actually like to make a choice it's the only thing that i'm interested in like i want to have the agency to choose what my work is and to choose the hard work as well the vulnerability, right? It's we have to first understand that like we move through the world so armored 
and contract it, right? Because that's this habitual thing that we learn. We think we have to shut down and shrink in order to survive the violence of the world, right? But in fact, the root of freedom is actually expansion. Like we have to expand, we have to open, right? But in that opening doesn't mean that we're leaving ourselves open for attack or for further hurt, it means that like we have the space to know how to avoid things, to make different choices that don't always lead back to being hurt more. Mm. Boundaries are stronger when we're expansive and vulnerable because boundaries are based on awareness. Like I know like the situations are the relationships that I need to divest from, right? And I learn that there are situations, relationships, and so forth that I actually have to invest more in because those are the relationships and spaces that are actually trying to take care of me, opposed to these other places and spaces that are depleting me, right? The boundary is really the capacity to make a decision to go where my healing is, not to keep going back into the places that deplete me. Mm, yeah. But you don't get that if you're just still shut down, right, and contracted, right? But to open, without that opening, you'll never be able to have full awareness of what you really need. Yeah, I'm just feeling into that, how yeah. that opening and the anger also, they're teachers. Yeah. Yeah. The truth is hard here. <laughs> like, you know, and I know, like, I know it's really hard. And again, I don't talk about anything or write about anything that I have not experienced or practiced, right? So when I talk about the truth, like, this is an everyday practice. Yeah. I am in relationship with people who love me enough to tell me the truth. Hmm you know, about how I'm showing up because I'm committed to getting free. But that commitment to getting free is really a commitment to reduce violence against myself and others. Yeah, because I love you said, if if we're not doing the work, we're work for other people. Yeah. 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 And that's like a huge, I don't know, like a sensitivity for me. Like, I don't want to make, I don't want to be a burden for people. Mm. That doesn't mean that I don't ask for help. When I, you know, like, but I ask for help out of a lot of awareness of what I need yeah. from people, right? I just don't move through the world really unconscious about how I'm showing up. I want to give as much as I take from the world and from people and relationships and so forth. Yeah, I think that's hard for some people and they feel like they're showing up and doing the work and they're not seeing that around them. Like reflected from others around them, like they don't see other people doing it. Yeah, right. Oh. Like, uh, and especially yeah. in the in the social justice space, right? You're asking me to sit here and do all this self reflection work and stop causing harm to myself and others, and then we've got all these folks out there that aren't even taking that first step. Yeah, well, you know, that's part of the work is to understand that I can't wait around for other people to do work. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. that like. So much of this liberation work, particularly as an agent of liberation, is first having to embody what liberation looks like, right? Because I think sometimes people don't know how to do the work because they don't have an example of the work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can only do what I do because I have teachers who embodied 
what this looked like and continue to embody what this looks like, right? Yes. That's what drew me into this, actually. This is what got me deeper into Buddhism was seeing these teachers who were so spacious and fluid and open and aware and kind and compassionate. And I said, oh, it is possible Mm. to reach this level, you know, of practice. Yeah. Maybe you could speak more to that, the importance of the teacher and the relationship to the teacher. I, I had that as a couple of questions for you around that. I mean, one thing you touched on earlier or that you, and that I've been taught, and I wonder what you'd like to say to this is about, you know, the teachers can also be these realized beings that we call into practice, yeah. ancestors. So I, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about that. I know when I started practicing mm-hmm. yoga and the Hindu ideology and everything was at first, I was like, that freaked me out. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I came to understand more about like the essence of these beings and how right. we can work with that. And then I guess my other question to you would be about the human to human kind of relationship with the teacher in your lineage. And of course, there's been a lot of issues with teachers from so many, from my lineage also. (laughs) And um, I wonder, do we need the full surrender Mm -hmm. to a teacher to get like, you know, to that liberation? Right. And of course, as a survivor, a trauma survivor, this could be being asked to totally Mm -hmm. surrender to a someone who's still still in human form on this earth could be a very difficult ask. So a couple of big questions in there. Yeah. You know, when we talk about surrendering, we're talking about devotion, right? And devotion isn't about giving up my agency and just handing my agency over to another person. I think devotion is realizing that the teacher is reflecting me and that I am being asked to surrender to what's being reflected. And what's being reflected is not just the work that I need to do, but what also should be reflected is my goodness, my beauty. Like, and those are the things that like we don't often see about ourselves, but a teacher is a mirror for us. Mm-hmm. When I have practiced devotion and when I do practice devotion to my teachers, it's not that I'm just giving my life over to the teacher, is that I'm committing to the work that the teacher is offering me, is reminding me of. I'm really taking refuge in myself. I'm surrendering to myself and developing the capacity to understand that it's through my labor that I will experience freedom, not through the labor of a teacher. Mm. The teacher Mm. is an example, an embodiment of what the path looks like, but I have to do the work to get free, just as the teacher had to do that. And continues to do that. I think in a Western, an American context, we were not a culture that's mature enough to understand devotion. Yeah. We still have a lot of work to do because these practices and teachings are new. They're still brand new. And heritage communities who are coming from cultures that embody practices of yoga and meditation from Asian countries, right? You know, they have a more sophisticated, deeper relationship to the working of devotion because it's so ancestral and cultural. And for us, we're having to grow into that, into like the essence of what devotion is and feels like for us, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and my issue with a lot of teachers is that they make devotion about them. 
a lot of teachers come into the space, come into the spiritual community with a lot of unmet needs, Mm. right? That devotion from students can really send them on a trip, Mm. (laughs) right? Um, And we've seen that. I think we've really, really seen that happening. And so therefore, for me as a teacher, I have to understand what my needs are and that my spiritual community is not a community where all of my needs should be met. I love having non-spiritual friends, actually. (laughs) Like, because that's a need of mine to be with folks who aren't fixated, right, on my role as a teacher. Yes, yes. And then another piece of that, too, is that it is inappropriate for teachers to have all their needs met by the spiritual community. And I think that's another misunderstanding about teachers and spiritual communities, right? As a teacher, when I experience devotion from students, whatever kind of like fanning people do around me, like it's not about me. It's about something that I'm offering that's helping people be freer. And so my devotion is to the Dharma, to the teaching. And so I want people to focus their devotion and trust and love into the teachings themselves, because Mm. that's what's actually freeing us. And two, like the first part of your question about the unseen world, like many of us struggle growing up in families and communities that are so distant from the magic of the world. So like colonialism and capitalism the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution, you know, are these movements and systems that arose that began to push away the uncertainty, the fluidity of the unseen world, the magic. And what we have to do is reclaim our magic, reclaim our ancestral magic. No matter what ancestry we, we come from, our ancestors all practiced magic and had a relationship to the unseen world. And so for me, coming into Buddhism was permission for me to reclaim that belief system, which was always with me. Like mm-hmm. I grew, I was always a believer in everything, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like yeah. from, from ghosts and deities to extraterrestrials and other worlds and other planets. So when I came into Buddhism and Buddhism was like, yes, of course. Like, you're not the only show in town. <laughs> you know? Like, a matter of fact, like, the teachings was like, how dare you assume that, like, you're the center of the universe? Mm, yeah. That you're the only life and the only intelligence. Life is life in the, the seen world and the unseen world is so vast and boundless, right? And it doesn't have to be overwhelming. You can just say, oh, yeah, there are countless beings. Mm-hmm. Buddhism, for me, also helped me to understand how to be in a relationship to all beings. There's a practice for everyone, Mm. right? And that's what really excited me to start doing practices where I was offering kindness and gratitude to unseen beings, right? When I was connecting to the earth and the beings connected to the earth in a fuller way, like it helps us to not feel so alone. Yeah, actually. And it also helps us understand that we have help and support if we can just believe and reach out. Yes. 
you know, those two things, because this idea that we have to do it all on our own or that we can is a false idea and that, you know, that will for sure lead to us dropping off the path. <laughs> and then, yeah, just opening up to and accepting that larger, that larger support and that connectedness. That's beautiful and very helpful. How would someone start, you know, if they mm -hmm. think like this might be a path for them, do they search for a teacher? Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? I would just explore the different traditions of Buddhism. And now we have technology and social media, which makes it so simple to do. It's so simple just to hop on YouTube and just to explore different teachers and traditions and lineages, right? And books, of course, we have so many books, right? And I tell people that, like, just explore. And the first thing that excites you and really interests you, just focus on that and see where that leads you. Yeah. For me, yeah, it was meditation, but I wasn't excited about meditation. Meditation isn't something that I've ever been excited about. Right? <laughs> That's so important for people to hear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it's just, it's beyond like attachment or aversion. It's more like, this is what I do. Yeah. Like, I don't think about it like that. It's just, oh, I have to do this. Like, it's as important as breathing. I breathe and don't think about it. And so I meditate and don't think about it, right? But early on, like, what really excited me about Tibetan Buddhism was the iconography. And that's what drew me in. So when I tell people to look at how you get hooked, pay attention to that because the all the gods and deities and the images and like really drew me in. Like I didn't know anything else, but I like felt really galvanized around these images and that led deeper, that led me deeper into all the practices. So pay attention to that. Anything that hooks you is a sign, mm. you know? Yeah. And, and you went all the way to, I mean, you went all the way to becoming a teacher. And as you mentioned early on, that part of that included three years, mm -hmm. three years. Okay. On retreat. Can you share a little bit about what that means for folks who have mm -hmm. never experienced anything like that? And my other question to you is about, you speak a lot about that you practice for liberation. Yeah. And the difference between practicing for liberation and practicing for comfort. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious if, so I guess these are two kind of separate questions, yeah. but yeah, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you think every, like a, you know, the lay person should be practicing towards liberation or are there different sort of level practices for a medium practitioner? <laughs> or if we're not practicing for liberation, are we just sort of doomed to repeat the cycle? Because mm -hmm. I know practicing for comfort will probably have us repeating some habits that keep yeah. us in comfort. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like there's no other way to get free but to practice to get free. You yeah. know, and I know people come into different forms of practice with different goals. And of course, one of those one of those agendas or goals is to experience comfort. And that's fine. Like Practicing for liberation doesn't mean that, like, you won't find comfort, because you will. Everything happens when our goal is freedom. Mm. But when we are short-sighted in a way and say, well, this is as good as I'm going to go, or this is as far as I want to go, which is just to stop here at comfort, 
then like you're going to be really uncomfortable. Yeah. I think everyone has to practice for liberation. Mm. But I know also that a lot of people don't understand what liberation is. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, Yeah. explain about it. And like, I think a lot of it is the giving up, the kind of shedding and giving up that has to happen. Yeah. And it's imperative, the giving up, right? The letting go. I mean, the freedom is really transcending duality. It's remembering what we are, which is this essence, that space and energy and fluidity and emptiness, right? It's what we are beyond the suffering. That's what I'm practicing for, is to remember what I am, to remember that I arise. This entity that's called Rod arises out of this fundamental space and emptiness and energy and clarity, right? And that I'm trying to remember where I come from in order to let go of all the suffering and the things that I have started to believe in that has nothing to do with my fundamental nature, mm-hmm. in essence, right? So that's, that's what I practice for, is to experience that and to remember that. Can you talk about, I know you, I, th- I think I read it in your book mm-hmm. or in one of your posts about, yeah, I think it's from Love and Rage. As we start to go down that path, there's an, a letting go of identity mm-hmm. that we might be caught up in. And that can well, feel like, am I letting go of my beliefs, well, my standards, right? Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, you know, we're letting go of this idea that I am anything and beginning to understand, especially identity as an experience, right? These are just experiences, hmm. right? Arising, right? And I have to see those, these identity locations as, as experiences or I won't know how to move past them back to what I really am, back into my essence. When you talk about letting go of beliefs, again, my core ethic is to reduce violence. And when I start letting go of what I think I am, then I actually start reducing violence naturally. Mm-hmm. You know, because so much of the violence comes from being confused about what I am and trying to protect something that doesn't need to be protected, investing in the realness of something that isn't real. Like that's where violence emerges from, right? Mm. And the more I let go and the more I open, I begin to understand that like others are a reflection of me. So if I hurt others, I'm actually hurting myself. So these natural, like our core beliefs actually began to deepen. Of course, the core belief of of reducing violence just becomes stronger and stronger when you're letting go of what you think you are. And you feel connected. You feel like you belong to people in a really transformative way. Yeah, I'm just taking it in and I'm just thinking about where, one, I'm considering, like, did you come to that on your own? Did you realize through your own practice that the more you let go of holding on to those identities, the more you reduced pain and suffering? Well, you know, yeah, of course it began with teachings that I received and studied. But then, of course, what happens through practice is that we develop an experience of this, right? And so this is, you know, my experience. Like, the more I let go of what I think I am, the more, actually, the more connectedness and happiness and joy I feel. 
yeah in the world right it doesn't mean you forget like i don't i don't forget that like i am physically arising as this black queer cisgender person man and with all these other identity locations absolutely of course i can identify that and relate to it but i also have this experience that how well, I have this experience that all this is just an experience that like these identities aren't inherently who I am, but they're experiences that I'm associated with in the relative physical world. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually reminded me of a question that I had for you earlier. And so actually I think this is kind of interesting. So I was thinking about like along the path and, how we start to, you know, perhaps a little less reactive and exhibiting more compassion and changed, right? We, we might change. And you have those old relationships. Yeah. Family comes to my mind, right? right. And like people still treating you like some version of yourself that you might have been before Ooh. and um, how we work with that. And then as you speak about this, right, it's, it's magnified for me that question, right? It's like you still have to deal with how other people perceive you and treat you that's wrapped up in their ideas of your identity. Exactly. And that's not labor from others that I have to take on mm. either. Sometimes there's this misconception that the ways in which people are projecting on me are are the ways I have to absorb and make meaning mm. out of it, right? You know, so we can be in the world and someone says, oh, you're such and such. I can disrupt that and say, well, actually I'm not. But I want to do more than just say that I'm not. I actually want to embody a different way of being. And so the embodiment, which is a practice, is actually communicating who and what I am more so than what people are saying about me, right? Yeah. So the embodiment part is really important because it's, we can embody harmful qualities. You can embody violence, but talk about peace and love. Yes. Yeah, I think we've all experienced that. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's why it's like it's so important for me when we talk about how do you teach or how do you share the wisdom of the path. And I say, well, it's not often about me communicating verbally verbally is about me just being like, I want you to see what this looks like. Mm, yeah. Right. That's the most powerful teaching. And that's how I am taught. Like I watch my teachers. I try to watch my teachers when they don't think I'm watching them mm. walk down the street, shop in the grocery store. I'm also really fortunate. I have, a, you know, one of my close teachers that I live really close to as well. So I can see them just in the neighborhood. <laughs> right? yeah. And I just watch them. Like, how are they relating to other neighbors? Like, how are they walking? Are they aware? Like everything, everything is a communication of our practice. So when you're moving through the world, right, it's not that I'm just completely disregarding everything that people are projecting onto me. I'm aware of everything. You know, and sometimes it's really important feedback that we're getting from people that I, I take seriously and practice with. But the rest of it, you know, when it's not aligning with who I know myself to be, I just let it go. Mm, I love that. I don't have to take on that labor. No, you know, yeah. because we don't know who we are. 
if you don't know who you are, you're going to take on the labor. Like you're always shifting to meet people's expectations. You know, you're always shifting to make people comfortable. Mm. Right. And sometimes that is violence because it can be a form of enabling people. Mm. That's really helpful. I think also from the trauma framework. Yeah. Because that's a trauma response as well, right? It's like fawning, enabling, yeah, just trying to make it better, trying to appease, yeah, so that the bad stuff goes away. Yeah, well, yeah. it's trying to impact some agency over the world around us, over the what I sometimes call the phenomenal world. If we can control the phenomenal world or the world or space around us, then we'll be safer. Yeah. You know, to an extent that is important, <laughs> like, but also to a greater extent, like we have to really invest in the practices that offer space to the experiences of trauma within our experience. It's like I want to give my trauma lots of pasture mm-hmm. where I don't feel as if I have to react to it. What do you do when the triggering comes up? Mm-hmm. It's the space. I name it. I see it. I name it. I'm going, okay, yeah, there you are. Mm. And I really try to relax the reactivity and just like give the energy a lot of space to be. And of course, at the same time, I'm asking for help, you know, as well. That's the key piece. Like asking when I'm in those spaces, just saying, you know what, please hold me. Please take care of me as I move through this. Mm. And I trust it. I trust the care that I'm getting from the unseen world. That's really beautiful. I appreciate that. Lamarad, are there other questions that I should have asked you about the Buddhist practice, your practice, your lineage, and how that relates to kind of our conversation today? Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if this is a question, but I really think it's so important to always point out that this is all work. That like, for me, so much has been given, like the teachings and access to modalities, you know, and so forth. That's been really freely offered. I've been really grateful for that. But I've had to do the work to embody these teachings and modalities, right? And the work can feel really isolating. It can feel really grueling, you know, Mm. and it can be full of doubt, When you say the work, do you mean sitting down every day and in meditation and doing self-inquiry? It's everything. Everything from sitting down and doing meditation to like bringing these practices into real life interactions. Mm, Yeah. Like all the work. That was actually the question from earlier um, when I thought about you on this three-year retreat. I thought about myself. I've been never that long to India many times and sometimes for three months, even longer at a time. And I know that each time I came back to Western culture and all the stuff, right? Having to pay the rent, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was challenging. And I know a lot of my friends as well that retreat with me. And that was just three months. Yeah. 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 How was that? And what is that relationship between going into retreat, even as we do that, even at home for a day or two and, and being in this practice, which ultimately I believe is relational. Yes. Well, for me, you know, retreat was this skillful way for me to refrain from distracting myself 
to move into the space where there were a lot of restrictions, where the conditions were such that it was all conducive to practice and work. Mm-hmm. Like, it is exactly what I needed. If I didn't get that, I wouldn't have had the discipline to yeah. really embody these practices. And so, again, not everyone, it's not that everyone should do this, but I think that if you're serious about practice and getting free, there should be some length of time where we're just with ourselves doing work, right? In a retreat and some type of configuration, right? But like, this is a path of learning to love ourselves, right? Like undistractedly, mm-hmm. you know? No, because there's so many things, right? That if something comes up, even a little bit of discomfort, yeah. when you're home, you can eat something. You can... Yeah turn the TV on. And when you're on retreat, you have to deal with that. Yeah. It's you and your mind and the teachings. And that was the line that I crossed, you know, even before going into retreat, I had to like cross that line where the discomfort arose. And I had to understand what it meant to face that discomfort with the help of Dharma. Mm. That's how the practice is embodied. When you test it out like that and you say, oh, I survived this, like it must be true then. So, you know, you do that over and over again, that turns into this deep faith in the power of the practice and the path. Mm. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you for that, Lamarad, and for all your time today. I think you have another book coming out is are you working on something yes yeah i have a new book um probably coming out end of next year end of 2023 called new saints and it is an exploration or a a revisioning i would say of the buddhist notion of sainthood Mm. yeah so very different book i Mm -hmm. think people are going to be really surprised at how much I kind of deviate from my first two books. And what what, uh, prompted you to go in a different direction? I think the times. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, pandemic and political unrest and climate change. Like, I think there's so much happening. And I just kept thinking about what it meant to be good right now. Hmm. Like, what is that process, right? What does it mean to be a saint? And of course, putting this into conversation with the ways in which social media has become this tool that people are using to create these illusions of their virtue, Mm. of how good things are for them and and so forth. I really wanted to write something to disrupt all of that. You know, like that being good isn't this place that we land. Good is a choice that we're making to reduce harm minute by minute, second by second. And what that looks like in life to make those choices every second and what kind of life that ends up being. Mm. Is that like the Bodhisattva or is that something different? Yeah, the Bodhisattva. Yeah, yeah, very. Yeah, it's the Bodhisattva. Okay. You know, but the problem with the Bodhisattva tradition in Buddhism is so there's a lot of magical realism in yes. practice. And so when people approach the literature about Bodhisattvas, we think that it's about being like a Marvel comic superhero. <laughs> like you have to like develop these powers. 
yeah to be of help but like the power of the bodhisattva is giving a shit that's it. like you mm. give a shit you do your work and you keep doing it that's all it is i love that right? so, so really this is what i'm doing it's like i'm taking all of this and saying this is what we should be doing now like this is how to practice goodness this is how we're going to move through all of this right and yes there is magic absolutely but we can't get distracted by the magic Mm-hmm. Like there's real work happening that the magic can support. Mm. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So the magic isn't the goal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We talk about this in like Patanjali talks about this as well. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Like don't, don't read the third pot too much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like we just bypass It's Like you, you have to understand that like, this is just real. It's a lifetime of work. Yeah. That's not about being comfortable, but there will be space for us to experience happiness and gratitude and joy, which is what we can rely on, which we can feel comfortable in, Mm. but we have to make, find comfort in discomfort Mm -hmm. by saying that like, yes, there is discomfort. And I know that this is something that I just have to move through to get to this space of liberation. Mm. Yes. Well, I love that. I love learning from you. I'm looking forward to that book coming out. Maybe you'll be very busy, I know, (laughs) but maybe uh, you'll be able to come on again and and speak more about that. I think, yeah, that's a whole conversation and understanding more about sainthood and how we can be it and not putting it up on this pedestal that just, again, puts us in a space of giving up like oh i can never get to that yeah absolutely thank you lama rod did i miss anything else is there anything else you'd like to share with us about what's coming up for you or Mm -hmm. any final words of wisdom (laughs) yeah absolutely i mean i would just just tell everyone just to stay connected through my newsletter and you can just visit my website lamarod.com and sign up for my newsletter and that's really the best way to stay connected to everything. And of course, social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. I love your Instagram teachings. Yeah. And we'll put all that in the show notes. And of course, if you don't have Lamarad's books, the first one, Radical Dharma, mm-hmm. which you wrote with um, Reverend mm-hmm. and Angel Williams. And remind me, Dr. She's a doctor, uh, right? Yasmin, yeah, Dr. Yasmin Saidula. Uh-huh. Yeah beautiful book Mm -hmm. and then love and rage so make sure you know folks will want to read both of those and then be on your newsletter for when the new saints books comes out yeah absolutely thank you so much yeah thank you it's been a pleasure as we buzz around the busy world it becomes clear there are billions of paths As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.